Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson, and tonight I'm doing a solo. And there are three subjects I'm going to cover. I'm going to go in depth in these subjects. And normally I don't do solos, and normally it's. Uh, but this is an unusual because here's what I did. You know, I had a thread that reached about, oh God, thousands and tens of thousands of people. I think the last time I checked, uh, basically something like 1,000 people read my tweet, which for me is a record. For me, this is a record, okay? For me, this was a record. And I said about maybe 2,000 retweeted it. And so, I mean, these were both records. But the interesting aspect is that there were a lot of interesting comments, and I thought tonight I would basically look at the comments and make comments. Okay, 39,805 people read the tweet, which was September the 5th. Nearly 2,300 people retweeted it, and and like I say, for me, this is a record, and there are several comments. So I thought what I would do tonight, I'm, I'm going to take some of these comments, and I'm going to basically digest them, discuss them, and basically correct, you know, and correct the record. I'm also going to talk about the U.S. Open and masking in New York. The U.S. Open was very interesting because right now, as we, you know, again, I've not, as we go through this scenario of what's happening, uh, we may be seeing the changing of the guard, both in men and women tennis. And I'm going to discuss that more later in the show. So, without, uh, so, so here's the thing. So that's basically going to be the show tonight. And. And so here, I'm going to read the tweet. Okay, I'm going to read the tweet. Uh, and by the way, you can get this on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And and if you want to call in, you can call in uh, 646-929-929. 0130 you know, 646 646 929 0130 All right. So let me get here. I'll get the tweet here in a second. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to apologize here in a second. Uh, 
But the point, like I said, it was kind of interesting because, like I said, there were several comments that people had, and uh, and I, you know they were all interesting. But there was, like I said, it was just kind of some interesting arguments. There were some interesting arguments. So okay, here it is: updated data unsafe. Among GOP governors, per death per capita was 180 per 100,000 to 180 per 100,000. In other words, four represents a two, you know, two percent differential. On the top popular states, there were 221 deaths per 100,000, and the top four most populous Democratic states, and 204 and the most populous Republican states which is a difference of about 8%. Then I looked at what we call states with GOP control of all level government. And there we saw 193 deaths per 100,000 versus 174 deaths per Democratic state. That represented a 10% differential. When you combine these different studies, what we found is that yeah, basically there was a two per 100,000 deaths in Democratic states. This represented a 1% difference. That means there are very little difference between the GOP, Republican versus Democratic states and deaths. Now for the unemployment. And this is a key element here. This is a metric nobody talks about. Among the 50 state studies, and based on what I'm defining, states with Republican versus Democratic governors over the past 18 months, the unemployment was 4.3 to 5.9%. Republican states had 4.3%. Democratic governors had 5.9%. Among GOP governors in top populous states, the unemployment was 5.1% slightly higher than the average GOP state, by the way, was much higher than the average and certainly significantly higher than the Democratic states and also the national average. Among divided states, and again, these are states we talk about where you have Republicans control all levels of power, legislative and and governors, you know, Democrats will control all level of power, would be considered a Democratic. And then states that had a mixture of, let's say, maybe the Republicans control one or two of the houses, legislation, they, the Democrats will have that, have the governors. Right. Among the divided states, when we look just strictly GOP states, 4.1% unemployment versus 6.4% unemployment among Democratic states. Uh, mixed states had approximately 5.1%. You know, among the 50 states, Democrats had 27% higher unemployment. Democratic governors had a 29% unemployment, higher unemployment. And in the third studies, Democratic governors had 36% higher unemployment. Overall, Democrats had essentially, you were 30% more likely to be unemployed if you lived in a Democratic state 
than if you lived in a Republican state. Uh, let me repeat that. You're 30% more likely to be in a Republican state than a Democratic state. So And the first studies. So basically, in the first studies, you had four per 100,000 deaths, uh, but you also had a stronger, more people employed, which represented 1,600 people per 100,000. Those four, the differential, the 4.3% versus the 5.9% represented 1,600 more people unemployed were employed. 100,000 were employed. Among the bigger states, Democratic governors had lower deaths and lower unemployment. Democratic states, uh, in the the last study, had approximately 20 per 100,000 deaths, 300 more people unemployed. Overall, two people per 100,000 died in GOP states, but the Democrats had 2,000 for 100,000 unemployed. That's your trade-off. And this is is how I concluded it. No real statistical significant difference in deaths, but major differences in unemployment. Proof that the lockdowns failed in saving lives but the economic damage was higher. So I am going to detail this more. I'm going to talk about some of the criticism that I got with the study here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one, in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. This is Tom Donaldson here back on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. All right. First of all, number one, you need to go to our website because you can listen to this show and other great shows that I've done in the, we've done in the past on the Donaldson Files, news, 
www.airtime.pro. And my show every day, you can listen to the show 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every day. So tune in to the Bastard News Radio Network. And also, don't forget, following this show, uh, we're going to have you in the law with Chief Keith Humphrey, Chief Virgil Green. You and the law is a show that opens up honest and open discussion about law enforcement and the relationship with the brown and black communities. Listen live every Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Block Talk. Well, and Block Talk Radio following this show and the podcast every day. So the you and the law will be following this show, and their guest will be attorney. Uh, we got here right here, uh, Ronald Skip Kelly, eternal attorney, Ronald Skip Kelly. All right. All right. Now, here's the point. Okay, here's the thing I'm going to say here. All right. I made you the opening statement. Now, let me talk about the references. Where do I get this data? I mean, obviously, people are going to say, you know, where do you get this data, Tom? You know, really? And, of course, there are a lot of people who probably said that. Really? <laughs> All right. I get my data from the CDC tracker. I also follow the John Hopkins tracker on the Atlantic Journal, uh, Worldometer, the Department of Labor, the Bureau of Statistics, the Bureau of Economic Statistics, and various references, uh, various studies, including uh, studies done by Wilfer Riley, State University. And let me put it this way, and I'm going to go more into this. Here's the first objection. New York exception must be considered an outlier. Response to include, but here's the thing. You know, I thought this was interesting. The number of people said to me, well, you can't count New York because they got hit early. They were densely populated. You know. And my point I'm going to make to you is why not? I mean, first of all, number one, you know, that's cherry-picking the data because I can make the same argument with California. California has got one of the you – know, has of all of the bigger states, it's a state that has, like, for example, versus Florida. They should actually have – more data. I mean, they should have actually done. That means, in effect, they you should expect California to do better. Interesting enough, there have been studies done when you put the variable of age, the variable of age, that Florida suddenly goes into bottom, twenty percent, and goes below California. So you get the you know point here. The point I'm going to make here is that okay is that, you know, first of all, we're looking at 18 months' worth of data. We've been following this for 18 months, folks. So for me to sit back and say, okay, we're going to, you know, so for anybody to sit back and say, let's cherry-pick the data and only put the states we want to put in, you're going to get skewer data. That's right. And and the thing I want to make important here is that I basically – Looked at this with two metrics, death per capita, and because those are two numbers you can follow pretty well consistently. And 
Now, while there are some variations, some variables you can look into, um, I would say this. When we looked at the date, for example, when Wilf O'Reilly looked at the first in April 2020, he looked at at the time at the beginning of this. He looked at these numbers, he, and he included densely populated areas as, you know, as one of the variables, and he got the same results that we're seeing right now. Blue states in general, lockdown states in general did poorly, including New York. In other words, it wasn't just a New York phenomenon here. And here's the thing, well, for, I mean, like New Jersey's got over 3,000. Uh, okay. You can count Mississippi. Should we take Mississippi out of the thing? Uh, should we take Rhode Island, which has 26, no, 261 per 100,000? Connecticut, 235 per 100,000? 222 per 1,000? I mean, where do you want to draw the line? I mean, the bottom line is, is this is that yes they had death total but you have to look at the entire picture over a period of months because this is a virus that's gone back and forth up and down with variations so count New York as an outlier well I could do the same thing in California but what I'm going to look at, because the other metric I looked at was the unemployment. For example, poor thinking here, Mr. Donaldson, ignores many factors, including the high death total early in the big blue cities. GOP states have so many advantages. Listen to this carefully. Yet the death rate is the same as blue states. And this gentleman is totally 100% wrong. He's 100% wrong. And the reason why he is 100% wrong is what I just stated. Wilfer Riley's study in April 2020. I should also point out he repeated this study in which he looked at three things. The death, you know, death per capita. He looked at minorities' death per capita between lockdown, non-lockdown states, and he added red states versus blue states, and the unemployment. And what we found is the same thing several months later, that there was, you know, that the death total, and they did much better economically speaking. So, and the question that comes into play here is that this is the point, that this gentleman missed the entire premise of what I was trying to say here. What he missed was the point that we need to understand. It's not just about coronavirus, but the impact of entire society as a whole. The GOP states have significantly lower unemployment, and they've had it for months upon months upon months. I can look at data a year ago and look at data today, and the differential that we see, 16 to 18, you know, the differential we see are the same. Wilf O'Reilly's study and my studies essentially mirrored each other on unemployment. So how can anybody sit back and say the GOP has so many advantages? And this brings me to another point. 
and that is the demographics. Okay, we compared New York, New York, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania that had Democratic governors to Georgia, Texas, Florida, and Ohio, which are the four most populous Republican states with Republican governors. And let's look at the numbers again, and let's look at these numbers. Let's just look at these numbers, right? Because the number percent of Democratic states were white versus 56% Republican. 34% were black and Hispanic among Republican states versus 31% Democrats. Republicans had less Asians. 4% 4% versus 8%. So when you look at these numbers, you look at all these advantages, the real killer is why did Republicans better economically and did no worse per capita when they had a slight disadvantage? They had more blacks and Hispanics, which tends with certainly beginning in the beginning of the had a higher death rates per capita. They're a slightly older population. Florida is the oldest population. California of that group I just mentioned is the youngest population, a 15% differential. So you would – and they had a slightly lower number of whites. So the advantages lied with Republican states. All right, let me repeat that. The advantages ran with the Democratic states and Republicans. Again, this, and, and, and when I look at these advantages, I'm not going to sit back and say, boy, they had a lot of advantages. They did not. I mean, it was probably statistically small in the advantages. But certainly, you can't sit back and say Democrats had all these disadvantages. They got hit early. Because we also know one other aspect, that the Fanny Pan Patty governors placed Place COVID patients in nursing homes. Now, I'm going to give you my estimate of how many that can produce because we're still not fully informed on the number because New York pretty much had this data. But my estimation is at least it could be possible anywhere 10,000, maybe 15,000 more people died in New York because of that policy alone. Now, that's just pure incompetence following the fact that you had governors who did some really stupid things early. And you have to throw in the fact that, uh, that again, the density side of the equation, the demographics, didn't necessarily favor Republicans at all. To me, is really you know, you know, and again, this is the point I made. Now, here's the other objection, Mr. Donaldson. You didn't take into account the worst deaths in Democratic states, and I'll follow up with this one shortly after this break here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. 
Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Yeah, and also, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget. Napa know-how. The Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Yeah, Napa know-how. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files. We will be followed today by you and the law uh, with Keith Humphrey and Virgil Green. They talk to um, – they have a guest on tonight. It will be attorney Ronald Skip Kelly. Ronald Skip Kelly. So don't forget Ronald Skip Kelly and uh, – Following this show, and don't forget you can listen to this show on the bachelornews.airtime.pro at the following time, a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Pacific Time, pardon me, Pacific Time, and 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and 1 p.m. Pacific Time, every day on the bachelornews.airtime. Dot pro. All right. Now I'm going down the line here. Okay. So. Yeah, as I've already stated, okay, here's the other question. Shows the worst that Democratic run states early. Uh, the GOP run states could have learned how to avoid deaths, but chose not to. Well, here's the bottom line. First of all, viruses are going to virus. We've had a grand experiment. And even with the recent surge in, with Florida, which, by the way, happens to be waning at the moment, as predicted by anybody who's been following this virus, uh, we've had a model. Reality is this. We know very clearly that there is absolutely, and again, even one of my critics have acknowledged this. Let me repeat what he stated. Yet the death rate the same as blue states. Guy admits that. This guy admits that. But well, let's look at the unemployment side. So the question is: if the death rate's the same, but the unemployment numbers are significantly lower, how can you say lockdowns are a grand success? All right. We know, for example, the Swedish model. The Swedes have basically done better economically than the rest of Europe. 
Their death total was not the worst. There were significantly states that there were countries that did far more economic restrictions than uh, Sweden, and yet came out worse. Uh, and certainly, when you even look at the the New York model, the New York model was a disaster. You can't even – I mean, that's it's appalling. I mean, the number of deaths that happened happened because of incompetence. I mean, you can't even dispute that anymore. There's a re, there are two reasons why Kumo is no longer government. The one which he which he padded, you know, he padded uh, way too many families, and two, quite frankly, he hid the extent of the damage from the nursing homes. And he's not the only governor who did this. Whitmore did this. Uh, Wolf of Pennsylvania did this. Murphy of New Jersey did this. And tens of thousands of people, additional people died as a result of this. Now, so the and even California. California numbers look the best of all the major states of high unemployment. They're one of the worst states unemployed, 7.6%. If you want to put it this way, think of it this way. In California, you're about 30% more likely to be unemployed than if you live in Florida. And you're less likely to be attending schools. And if you look at the vaccination rates, they're not that much different. So you can't even make the argument. So the question is, and this is the point that all of my critics haven't even acknowledged, and that is, what about the economic side? What about the other side effects? Increased suicide, increased uh, drug overdoses, disease, chronic diseases not being properly treated. And premature deaths as a result of screenings that don't happen. Well, it's been estimated into our two to one margin on that. A two to one margin. So two to one margin. Where two people will die prematurely or already died from the lockdown and the policy instituted from the lockdown versus um, the coronavirus, total margin. The economic data is overwhelming. The, the, for every dollar, there was one study, for every dollar supposedly saved by these locked economic restrictions, $5 were lost. On a 5 to 1 ratio, 2 to 1 ratio. And I didn't even bring that up in the study. I just simply talked about the metric of economics, of unemployment. And again, I'm not, I mean, and I don't want to say here that I'm dissing, uh, that I am dissing or this virus or minimizing this virus. No, I'm not. It killed hundreds of thousands of people. Nobody's going to dispute that. It's a serious pandemic, probably the worst pandemic lethally that we've seen since the Spanish flu. But it's one-third to one-fourth the Spanish flu. On the average, we're talking about a virus that killed four, two to four per 1,000. The average flu season is one per 1,000. We've seen pandemics like 1957, 1968, where the, the, the infection fatality rate 
which you know significantly, maybe close to two, maybe three per thousand. So you can make the argument that on the average, this was twice as like deadly as the average flu season. But do you crash an economy on those numbers? You know, and let's talk about the economy side of the equation on the unemployment side, because here's again, it's funny. Forty thousand people read read this thread. Forty thousand people read this. Not one person, not one, even touched the economic side of the equation. Even economic side of the equation. You would think. And here's the question. As one of my critics stated, he, he, he basically stated and agreed with me that the numbers were similar in desperate capita. So he and other critics need to ask this question. Okay. Four undemocratic governors. You look at the top states. 5.1% Republicans versus uh, yeah, 7.2%. Divided government. Uh, the divided government side of the equation. 4.1% versus 6.4%. In fact, 2,000 people, a two percentage point differential, were unemployed in Democratic states. Okay. We know clearly the suicide attempts and suicides among younger people have gone up. We know have gone up. You know, I saw one statistic saying it may be as many as a 30,000 increase over last year of drug overdoses and uh, suicides. Most of those were young people. That's the victim of the lockdown, not the virus. As I stated, there'll be 1.3 million premature deaths or deaths that have already died now versus the number and versus, let's say, 600,000, 50,000, 650,000 died is listed as deaths from coronavirus. That means two people will die for every one died of the coronavirus. Now, and we also know, and I haven't even touched on this area as well, this area as well, Small businesses, hundreds of thousands went out of business. Carol Roth just wrote an entire book on the thesis, which she talks exactly about this, where she brings up the point of the number of people who died. I mean, number of businesses that went out of business. Uh, and let me get the okay the book, the war in small business. Uh, the government, and she wrote a book, 
and she detailed the impact both in actual going out but also in the loss of individual rights. People were thrown in jail to try to make a living. Individual rights were discarded. And the big and the rich and the most powerful, and most of these were done in blue, Democratic-run states. If you were a black business, you were twice as likely to be declared as likely to be declared not essential than white businesses. And not only that, but here's the other aspect that comes into play. Wilfer Riley and his study, when he looked at blacks versus whites in lockdown versus non-lockdown, Democrats versus Republican states, found that blacks were more likely to die from the coronavirus in Democrat-run states. Let me repeat that. They were more likely to die from this than in Democratic-run states. When you look at the CDC trackers, okay, there was a, a couple of studies done in the Atlantic magazine based on the John Hopkins CDC where they looked at, and they found the top worst states for blacks to die from coronavirus is Michigan, New York, and New Jersey. And when you looked at some of these top states with high percentages, Republican versus Democrat, you see the same thing over again. Blacks were more likely die, and Hispanics are more likely to die in Democrat-run states. This is Tom Donaldson here at the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, here that you and the law follows this show on this network with Chief Keith Humphrey and Chief Virgil Green, a show that talks about honest and conversations about law enforcement and the relationship of black and brown communities. Uh, so stay tuned to follow this. And also, if you want to listen to this show at your convenience, well, I won't say your convenience, but at, your, at, a, another, at another schedule, here's the deal. My show, This Honest and Files, can be listened to 
11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 10 a.m. Central Time, and 3, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Central. Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News dot Pro. So, and call in 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. Okay. Now, I'm going to wrap this thing up because I did promise I'm going to talk about masking in New York, and I'm going to also uh, go into the – excuse me. Uh, masking in New York, and I'm also going to kind of talk about the U.S. Open, uh, get into a little sports as well. So, yeah. So that's uh, – so, but I do want to wrap this thing up, and – and I, and I guess before I wrap it all up here, uh, I got a caller and my good friend Pam. Pam, I'm going to ask you for your opinion. How am I doing? Well, I think you're doing very honorably trying to defend yourself. I saw some of the comments on some of your statistics, and if somebody had followed you for a while, like since this beginning of this um, pandemic thing, they would have seen some of your earlier stuff, the, the statistics you put out and known where you were coming from, you know, with, with the charts and stuff. And I just think those were just what I call gut reactions to what they saw that you put out the other day, yeah. today or yesterday. Yeah. I can't remember when it was, but yeah, yeah, um, a couple of days. But yeah. I think you're doing pretty, yeah. pretty honorable there defending yourself. All right. Thank you. Uh, all right. Here's the point. Like I said, cause here's the thing. The one thing, as I stated, it, you're right. There's a gut instinct that was there. Defend the others, you know, defend my beliefs. Because they never read the whole thread. That's the thing that got me. They never read the whole thread. You know, they never, I mean, I, I, I mean, seriously, 40,000 people responded to this thing. And, and nobody, I mean, absolutely, including people who, you know, Nobody talked about the economics. They didn't they don't plumb me. Nobody came up and said, well, gosh. I mean, they didn't comment one way or the other on the economic side. And I, you know, and to me, that was the whole point. You know, that, look, if the pandemic, if the lockdowns were successes, you should have seen not only a significantly higher debt total, but would you have seen this kind of economic, you know, upturn? In other words, was the lockdown worse in those blue states, in those Democratic states, and some Republican states, the lost fifteen hundred per one hundred thousand people unemployed? You know, to me, if I'm running a campaign next year, I'm going to say to those Democrats, like Governor Whitmore and a government Newsom, who's facing recall, uh, government Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania. Was it worth the sum one billion? The question nobody has sat back and said, "God, what's the what's the trade-off?" They act like there was absolutely no trade-offs, and that's what intrigues me. Which brings me now to you know my own view here, where we are and where we should be. You know, if I ran a state, here's what I'd be telling my voters. I said, "Look, here's the deal." 
I want you to get back. I'm not going to force you to get vaccinated. I'm not going to give out vaccine passports. I'm not going to have a mask mandate. I'll leave that up to you. I'm going to treat you like adults. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to get vaccinated because the vaccinations are fairly safe, and it will help reduce and protect you and reduce any serious illness. All right? I will tell physicians uh, you got an anti-parasite drug. If you think it might work, use it early in the case. Tell us what's going down, and let us know. You know, if you feel this is worthy of a test, Based on, let's say, international data, fine. Also, Lilly has a product, an antibodies, that's available. This is what Ron DeSantis is doing right now. I mean, he literally has 40 of these, 50 of these sites where you literally, if a patient comes in with the symptoms of COVID, you can call up these centers and say, hey, look, I need this drug. I got this patient. And the sooner you put this patient on it, the less likely they're going to be in a hospital, less likely they're going to die. And so, in other words, we, there's absolutely no excuses, any governor, not to come up with a game plan that a, interferes with people's liberties, while at the same time protecting the population and getting people well. Okay. This is not rocket science. And we're talking about viruses that, on the average, kills two to four per thousand. The other thing I do, and this will be controversial, and I'll ask your opinion on this, Pam, is I'm at a point where instead of – this is what we do with other pandemics. You test people with symptoms because these PSRs have their own inaccuracy. What they will measure, and depending on the cycles that they're uh, looking at and what they're going to measure is whether or not you had an infection. So, and so basically, it doesn't necessarily mean you are infected or you're infectious. It simply means you may have been exposed to a coronavirus sometime in your life. And I think we ought to get back to normality and say, you know what? Be careful. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Uh, get yourself vaccinated if you choose to do so. It would help you. Uh, get back to your life. Uh, and I will say, Pam, what do you think? I totally agree with you that. You know, I've, that's what I've said all along. You give me the information. I'm an adult. You let me make the decision. If I'm a mother, you let me make the decision for my kids. If I'm a father, you know what I mean? Um, let me yeah. make that decision. Um, and I, I, I totally 100% agree. It's the same thing with the masking and the non-masking and whatever and the vaccine passports and stuff. I mean, I just think that's way overboard and really crazy because they've proven lately that the vaccine actually isn't working even if you have premorbidity. There are people coming down with the COVID. Are, Are they testing positive? Are they dying? Are they going to the hospital? Those are the questions I ask. You know, yes, you had this person who's been vaccinated that tested positive for COVID. Well, did they get sick? That's my question, you know, and yeah. how sick did yeah. they get if they got sick? And, and uh, yeah. Yeah. those are my questions with that. I, you know, I'm just, you know me, I'm, I'm really, I'm yeah. vaccinated. I chose it is what I chose. However, 
um, I don't believe that anybody should be telling me to vaccinate, and I will not tell anybody else to vaccinate. I let people choose. I've always, you know, you let, you got to let people choose their path. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a point. Good point there. And and I'm going to just let that summarize because I do want to get into masking in New York. Uh, Masking in New York. Uh, Because I found this in in masking in New York and also vaccine passport because they have. I mean, literally every place we went into, you had to show a passport. You had to show a passport. And, you know, the thing, here's the interesting thing. All right. I went to the U.S. Open for two days. Passport, you had to get in. You had to show passport to get in. But here's the thing. Nobody was wearing masks. Nobody. 95, I, I take it back, 95% of people in that arena, in the stadiums, wherever they were, weren't wearing masks. That's all there was to it. Number two, when you went into these restaurants, you literally, people, I mean, they bringing their passports, they're, uh, they'll have their mask, walk in, sit down, get a drink, you know, and the minute they got something on the table like a drink or hors d'oeuvre, whatever, they took the mask off and they stayed off the rest of the conversation. In other words, people didn't necessarily keep their masks on. And the other thing that comes into play, and it's kind of interesting how New Yorkers get around this, but the question, there are two other points to this question, the problem with this question. Uh, vaccine passports is this if you've been infected with the virus you have protection even if you don't know where do they make any exceptions to where if i can say like Rand paul the senator who's who's got antibodies who said i'm not gonna and i and i've got a couple friends of mine who've been infected who said i i don't see the upside in getting vaccinated and i'm already protected they should have an exception to that. Number two, poor people, minorities in New York City are 20% less likely to be vaccinated. Now, I'm not going to dis- you know, discuss the why of all that, but I'm going to say that a large number of your population can't go to a baseball game, can't go to a tennis match. Many of these restaurants do have outdoor seating, which I thought was interesting. And I th- actually thought this was kind of cool. You know, in fact, I think this really added to the ambiance of some of these smaller restaurants because you're literally, you know, they would, you know, they took part in the sidewalk and put, you know, tables and chairs and served people outdoors. So if you didn't have a, you know, back, you know, vaccine passport, you know, you know, you could at least sit outdoors. But the question comes into play is, is this good policy? You know, I'm going to say no, but it is still. And those are my opinions. Uh, you can, if you want to uh, have more details, you can call. Here's the thing: just Twitter site is that Donaldson Files. Also, DonaldsonTFiles.com. You can comment on this. And now I'm going to go to the U.S. Open because I did promise people this, and but I really thought there were some very interesting things happening. So, and let me kind of begin with uh, the first thing here. Uh, I truly saw what I thought was, what I'm going to use the word, a change of the guards. 
Change into the guards. And and let me just, you know, and, and I saw, for example, it was really interesting, some very, and let me just talk about a, a few of these uh, tennis players. Jensen Brooksy got into the top, you know, the, the round of 16 before he faced one of the greatest players of all times. And he basically beat the guy, beat Novak, 6-1 to one the first set. And then he pretty much, you know, again, you know, Novak won. He eventually won this match 3-1. to one. But Booksy's like a grinder. He's a young, talented player. Uh, the British Radit Asiamer, uh, 18 years old, beat an experienced Shelby Roger, who had already beat the number one player the match before. Pounded her like a rock. Uh, Layla Fernandez, 18 years old, and she based, she took out Nasaki Osaka. Naomi Osaka took her out. All right, took her out. And then she won her next match. So she's now, so you literally have two 18 year olds in the quarterfinals. You have an 18 year old in Spanish, Carlos. Alcaraz uh, in the finals. Just like, like I said, it's just kind of an interesting aspect here because here's what I kind of wrote at the beginning. Because one of the questions I got from people, you know, is the excitement there? Is the thrill there? I'm going to tell you, the crowds were on fire. They literally were on fire. Uh, they were on fire. I mean, I have never seen a rambunctious group, and I've been to the U.S. Open so many times. And this was probably the most rambunctious, excited crowd. I don't know if it's excited because it's been two years since you can have the crowd. I don't know if it's excited because they got into these new players. Uh, do know is is that there was excitement there that hasn't been seen in years. A new generation coming up. Uh, Essentially, the Williams sisters, as far as the females go, women's players go, their gener- they have passed. That generation is over. Now it's and the new generation is back. And one of those people to watch is Leah Fernandez. I just talked about the young British uh, tennis player. Coco Goff is 17 years old, uh, and she still has got you know she's got talent. Uh, Jay, Jensen Booksy, boy, this kid is like a grinder. Uh, Carlos Alvarez, God, this kid looks, you know, he's got, you know, these two are talented young players. I mean, these five players that I just mentioned are going to be superstars in the future. You know, and in the case of the men's tennis, yeah, in the case of men's tennis, uh, Future, like you say, you know, the case of men's tennis, the bottom line is very simple, folks. Bottom line is very simple. The future is bright. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to say good night. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files. Uh, if you got any questions, comments, you feel free to call me. I mean, no, don't call me. Tweet me at, at DonaldsonFiles.com, Donaldson T. Files. This is Tom Donaldson here in the Bachelor News. Radio Network, and stay tuned because 
you and the law will be as soon as I get the proper intro, which has just disappeared. Oh, here it is. Okay, I'm going to apologize to the Chiefs. Virgil Green, Keith Humphrey, and your guest. Enjoy. Welcome you to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we want to thank uh, Tom for assisting with the show tonight. We definitely uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time out to stand in and uh, and assist us tonight, Tom. We definitely appreciate it. So we've got an exciting, we've got a very good topic that we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. We've got a guest on the show. Uh, he is a criminal uh, defense attorney uh, out of Oklahoma City. Uh, his name is uh, Ronald Skip Kelly. He's going to be joining us here pretty shortly uh, to talk uh, about the topic that we're going to be talking about, Chief Humphrey. So, man, I hope you're excited about the show just as well as I am. Hey, good. what's going on, Virgil? I, I am, and, and good, good evening to the listeners also. As, as well, man. So, so, brother, we got a, a, a topic that we're going to be talking about, and, and uh, I've got a lot of feedback uh, from the, uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about, Keith, and, and that is the, the ties that bind prosecutors and police. And so uh, we're going to be also talking about the Ahmad Arbery case that took place in uh, 2020 in Bushwick, uh, Georgia, and just recently, the uh, former district attorney was indicted uh, on alleged um, activities in that case where uh, it's alleged that she um, uh, conspired to uh, uh, interfere with the arrest of the individuals that were involved in the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. But, Keith, man, we're going to uh, bring on... Attorney Ronald Skip Kelly, sir, we're glad you're able to take out and, and join us this afternoon. Thank you, Mr. Green. How you doing, Chief? Yes, I got What's two chiefs. What's going on, Skip? I, I got two chiefs here pointing at me, huh? <laughs> hey, hey, Skip. Hey, hey, Skip, you doing, you doing okay? I mean, uh, listen, listen, Skip. Let me tell you something. I, I will. I will tell you this. Um, it's an honor to have you on, even if you do, even if you are good friends with Virgil. I'm not gonna hold that against you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know the reality of it is we all been friends in, in a circle before, and you guys are doing an awesome job. I I didn't know about the uh, the podcast until here recently, but uh, I also didn't know that you had. Uh, transferred to uh to arkansas yes sir uh i think this is where uh i think this is well i know this is where the lord led me uh and uh, it is um 
you know, I move when he says move, and so I, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm glad I'm here. Well, yeah, I hope I know you're doing a good job. Uh, everybody was pleased with your uh, your your tenure at at uh, Norman, and so you know, it's always good to see individuals who get an opportunity to move on and move up. And so I wish you the best and to stay in touch. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate good hearing from you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, uh, Skip is, uh, Skip has been a, a one of the most well-known, uh, criminal defense attorneys in, in Oklahoma city. So I, I don't want to talk, uh, let everybody, let our listeners know, who Ronald Skip Kelly is, but the only person who can do it better than me is, is Ronald Skip Kelly. So, Skip, won't you let our listeners know how long you've been uh, an attorney and uh, everything that that you got going on as an attorney here in Oklahoma City? Well, I, I've actually been um, in trial litigation since back to 1982. Uh, I uh, have my humble uh, beginnings that I always have to tell people that I, I come from a poor side of town in a little town and uh, Enid, Oklahoma, but it was, uh, it was a poor side that we didn't know was poor and it was uh, a lot of love when we didn't have anything else and that kept, kept us uh, moving with faith and and so I'm, I'm happy to uh, to say that I'm a product of Enid, Oklahoma. It's my it's where I was born. My dad was a uh, was the second uniform African American back then Negro police officer. His picture with the colored with the uh, police class. He's listed as colored officer. And mm-hmm. so I've been around. I grew up with a police officer over my head every day. <laughs> so uh, I know the challenges that police officers go through. I have had an opportunity once in my own career, short-lived, but but it was uh, serving as a probation and parole officer. And so, you know, I got to see back in uh, when I was in law school what real uh, – law enforcement was and had a great deal of interactions with the uh, Oklahoma City police officers uh, as it relates to assistance as in reference to uh, probation uh, incidents that we had to initiate and, and, and request the assistance of the Oklahoma City Police Department. And an interesting twist was that, uh, you know, also worked with the with the uh, after that, I worked with the Oklahoma City School Board working with juveniles. So when I became, when I started my practice, I, I recall a lot of those those officers that I'd had some friendly contact with, and now we were in the courtroom and they are on the other side. And <laughs> but the reality of, of of all of that, it just it shows that we all were there to do one thing, and that was to serve, to defend the Constitution. And they have an oath. We have an oath. As you all know, uh, there's nothing different in either one of those oaths when you look at the totality of, of the oath of a law enforcement officer, the oath of an attorney, 
some people even say, well, you know, district attorneys, they're not different in reference to the qualifications. We all have to go through the same trials and tribulations to graduate from law school, the same trials and tribulations to take the bar exam and to be admitted into the, uh, the profession. And that admission mm-hmm. requires an oath. And so, you know, it's, it's just like the police officers that graduate from the academy. One of the first things that is part of the oath is to support the Constitution of the United States. Exactly. And so we all hey, have... Skip, sure. Hey, Skip, I, yes, sir. I don't mean to cut you off. You said something really intriguing to me. I don't think a lot of our listeners understand what an impact your father made to the law enforcement field. I'm, you know, unfortunately, I didn't uh, have an opportunity to, to know him or or know him. But right. but colored officer, I think yes, I think that I think that a lot of people don't understand the the uh, history of people of color in the law enforcement profession. Uh, the the fact that we could not ride in the car with with white officers, we had to ride in the back seats, and we could only patrol certain areas. But colored officers, I mean, when you look at some of those pictures, you have the the, the African American officers taking photos in one group, and then you have the white officers. So, thank you for sharing that because I don't think a lot of these these young officers realize that, or, or our citizens don't realize that 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 was fact. Your dad was part of history. Yes, and it was it was pretty much uh I mean it was it was for the most part it was the rule that existed in probably every state in the United States that hired a African American or a colored police officer at that time. My dad went on the police force uh January the 4th of 1950, the day that I was born, and he did 25 years for the Enid Police Department and uh it was not until, well, as a child, I recall on several occasions, my father and his law and his partner, Mr. Porter, they would stop an individual that was of white uh, complexion, and they were hey not guys. allowed to put him in their police car. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, I want to don't want to interrupt this important conversation that we're having, but we're coming up on our first break. So, Skip, we're going to take this break, and we come back. We're going to get back into the topic. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse. Go, guys. Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course, I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all 
Know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Hey, everyone, and welcome everyone back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We've got on uh, this, our show this evening uh, an attorney out of Oklahoma City who is uh, attorney Ronald Skip Kelly. Uh, not only has uh, Skip been an attorney, but he's also served on the Oklahoma City Council as a council member. And uh, so he's been involved in in the private sector as well as in the public sector. And so we're just uh, glad to have you on the show, Skip, to talk about this topic that you are very familiar with, uh, Skip. And uh, a lot of, you know, over the the past year or so, uh, the public has demanded changes in the way the criminal justice system works. And so what happens when those who are supposed to make sure there are checks and balances in the criminal justice system. When those individuals look the other way, they conspire to hold, withhold evidence or they interfere with an arrest. And so by you being an attorney who's representing individuals, you, you have uh, uh, a working relationship with uh, district attorneys. Some people call them prosecutors. Yes. On, on so, a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, recently, Skip, the, um, you know, the incident that took place in uh, Georgia with Ahmaud Arbery, you know, it, su- it really surprised me when I was preparing for the show that there were, I think they're on their fourth uh, prosecutor who has been appointed to the case uh, she is a uh, black female uh, out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so three other individuals were assigned to the case. There's been a lot of conflicts. But recently, the, the first prosecutor, she uh, has been indicted, and uh, there's allegations that she interfered with the arrest of the three men that are now facing uh, murder charges in that case. So, Skip, what does that do to the criminal justice system when you have prosecutors who are very close to police, but they look the other way when they shouldn't? Well, I think um, to respond to that, Chief, there's two issues, I think. Number one, we talk about the criminal justice system. Uh but far too many times we tend to cherry pick what we want to talk about out of this system. 
if mm-hmm. the system is what it's supposed to be, it's a set of wheels that makes the whole, if you want to compare it to a car. I mean, it's an engine that, that does not work without other components of the vehicle. Our governmental system as it relates to criminal justice, and I have to sometimes question whether or not it is all justice, but we work towards justice. And in Mr. Aubrey's case, I will say, in my opinion, that some parts of this system is truly working because you are identifying individuals who have conflicts. And because of those conflicts, they should recuse or they should not have been even involved in the case in the first place. So that in itself is a step towards saying that we're doing the checks and balance that is supposed to be administered as it relates to a conflict concerning a particular case. Now, the the, the prosecutor that has went over and above in reference to trying to manipulate some parts of the evidence as it relates to the case or trying to to suppress the charges that should be uh, uh, evaluated, then mm-hmm. to that person, there is part of the criminal justice system that he or she should answer to. So at this point, he or she is no different than the individual that's charged with larceny from from a retailer, you know? And you get apprehended Mm -hmm. for that, then you got to go through the criminal justice system. Or that person who gets stopped in his car and has a small amount of drugs and it's a violation of that state's law, then that person has to go through the system in order to to answer to his uh, alleged offense, not saying that he's guilty or she's guilty, but the alleged offense. And so I think that, you know, looking at this case, and I've, I've, I've paid attention to it from day one, is that as long as you have those checks and balances and those checks and balances are working, then we have to accept the fact that that part of the system is doing what it's supposed to do, that the individual... Mm-hmm. The individual that goes outside of the bounds and outside of the duty and the oath that he or she has taken, then that same check and balance should be imposed and and checked that individual. And if it deserves being, um, you know, a charging order and the information is properly, uh, you know, addressing the issues that the allegations support, then... That individual is now part of of, uh, of the system in which she has to defend herself. And, of course, at that point, we all have to respect the fact that an individual is only alleged and accused until they have been found guilty or they have pled guilty. And and so to that extent, I, uh, I respect that part. Now, what I have a problem with, as I discussed with you, Uh, the other day is that I think we have in our society today, we have individuals who have, for some reason, been convinced that there is an I got you 
operation that they can utilize from their position against the best interests of others or against the interests of justice to others. And and we have a, a climate of people, I think, that has, you know, not only uh, been accepted into the various professions, but also into the various uh, law enforcement agencies that just seem to be there for no other purpose than a self-serving agenda. And I think that's what's harmful to many of our, our law enforcement agencies, many of our, uh, you know, attorneys at the same, you know, I'm not going to leave attorneys out. And that means both in the civil litigation, those individuals who practice in administrative law, those individuals who practice in, in criminal defense, and those individuals who happen to be prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Skip, let me ask this question. What, what sure. uh, To those uh, listeners who may ask this question, well, when you talk about checks and balances with, with our uh, prosecutors or district attorneys, who – as we know that these most of them all are uh, are elected officials. So yes. who, where is the checks and balances? Who checks the district attorneys when there is allegations of of, of misconduct, especially when there uh, are elected officials? So uh, you got some people who will probably say, well. That's as high as you can go. You got the district attorney, but then you got uh, uh, in every state you have a uh, an attorney general. So you got a lot of people who will ask this question. Well, who is going to check them if there are some allegations of misconduct that's coming out of that district attorney's office? Well, I, I think the first the first check that we have is 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 our own uh, profession, and that mm-hmm. is the, the bar association. You know, if any any attorney that has uh, been identified as committing any act that's in violation of the code of ethics of their state bar or the American Bar Association, then the bar association itself is a governing body to investigate and they do investigate and 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 many attorneys are uh, sanctioned either reprimanded publicly or uh, private reprimands or sometimes they're even you know uh, their license are, are are removed for a certain period of time and so first of all you do have a governing body, because I think sometimes the word district attorney or prosecuting attorney, you have to always remember we are all under the same governing bar association. We are all members of the American Bar Association. We all are members of our state licensing bar association. So it makes no difference whether or not I'm the private attorney practicing and representing the individual is charged with the crime, and 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 Mr. Smith is the assistant att- attorney uh, that's prosecuting the case, and I'm defending. We as two attorneys, 
and we both have an oath that we have to respect, and we have duties that we have to comply with for the best rights and interests of our client, of my client, and the prosecutor has a duty to seek the truth, not to make something up, but to seek and find the truth. And in the in the mm-hmm. prosecution of their case, that's what they're supposed to do. So mm-hmm. now, if you take it from from and because the average citizen clearly don't understand, oh, I can just write the bar association and complain about the prosecutor. Most of the cases where you find the misconduct, they're usually identified by the person, the attorney that's representing the defendant. And unfortunately, many times that is not addressed until the case gets to an appeal stage. Mm-hmm. And there has been okay. some very, very important cases where uh, cases have been reversed on nothing more than, than prosecution misconduct. But at the same time, a lot of cases have been reversed because of ineffective assistance of counsel by the defense attorney. So those are the those are the two checks and balances that that exist in reference to uh the prosecutor and also to the defense attorneys. Okay. Well hey Skip, we're getting ready to come up on our taking our next break. So we're gonna take this break and we come back, we're gonna get back into the topic about the ties that bind police and prosecutors, but you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. to give dad his medicine. At 6 a.m. I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m. I shower. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. The Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. Hey, we want to welcome everyone back to You and the Law podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we want to remind everyone that um, you, if you miss any parts of the live broadcast, you can go back and listen to the rebroadcast show at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. That's thebachelornews.airtime.pro. 
And we also want to remind you that there are many other great shows that are on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and one of those shows is the Bachelor News Radio Show, uh, which is hosted by L.A. Bachelor. Uh, the show discusses issues of race, politics, policing, injustice, uh, and many other topics. You can listen live uh, to the Bachelor News uh, Radio Show every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at blogtalkradio.com backslash L.A. Bachelor. So tune in to uh, many other great shows that are on the network. But, um, uh, Keith, man, the the conversation we're having uh, is is a a conversation that a lot of people uh, have asked questions about, especially over the last couple of years. And uh, so uh, let me, Keith, I want to remind our listeners that the chat room is open. So if you have any comments or questions for our, for our, um, for our guest, Attorney Ronald Skip Kelly, uh, uh, send those uh, messages in and we'll get those uh, uh, on air. And uh, so I know we got a lot of people listening to the show, but Keith, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that we have, prosecutors who uh, tend to look the other way uh, on some things that are related to police officers. And I think um, I had a a, a person ask me a question that, you know, when these prosecutors are running uh, for office, uh, who is one of their biggest supporters? And, and Skip, you, you know this answer, most likely. It's the FOP union. And so when there is that type of relationship between an elected prosecutor and the police unions who help this person, he or she, get elected, um, there tends to be some, some favoritism, some people believe, uh, in the public towards police officers. So are, are you asking is if the, the police union is uh, a major part of, of support for Well, for I think elections? a lot of the, the, I think you, you have people, yeah, you have, you, you've had some, I've had some people uh, reach out and, and uh, ask the question, when you have district attorneys who are elected uh, officials uh, and they do get a lot of support from, the uh, police unions, and these are individuals that they work with every single day, and they rely on an officer's affidavit to bring a charge, uh, to bring the initial uh, charge that led to the arrest to the prosecutor. Uh, and then when that officer gets, find themselves on the wrong side, some people tend to believe, Skip, that uh, prosecutors look the other way because there's this good old boy system. Well, you know, I, I think there's an argument on both sides. I think there's some validity to, uh, well, first of all, we have to accept the fact that the police unions as they are today are very, uh, a very strong force and in many local elections and in some respect, even in some state elections. Um, mm-hmm. But, but you know, what's interesting is you look at the uh, 
the transformation and the growth of, of, uh, of police unions from its very first inception, dating back to the 1900s, when the police union was basically a patrolman's benevolent uh, association. Uh, and its, its number one aim was uh, assisting uh, widows of officers who had been killed in the line of duty. Uh, Correct. They were not involved in the collective bargaining rights of, of individuals that was on the police force, uh, nor were they involved in basically uh, a major part of the right of the uh, the policies as it relates to collective uh, agreements for the police department itself. But that's where we are today. We we have mm -hmm. now um, the police de departments in most states are supported with a uh, a collecting bargaining uh, part of the labor of the union, the FOP. And I think, in in my personal opinion, I have supported unions since. I knew about unions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think they've served and, and do serve a very, very uh, protective commodity for uh, many of our workers in, in the United States and also for those individuals who, who are already in a job. Uh, you know, some of the issues concerning injuries, um, protections for certain type of benefits. So I think that the 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 issue is it's it's touchy in a way because as I stated before, you have good offices and you have bad offices. You have good lawyers, you have bad lawyers. You have good prosecutors and you have bad prosecutors, okay? Um most of this is always part of the checks and balances to identify who the bad is. And that's going through that system where the the individuals are checked from each part of the system, which means that the judge checks from the judge to the appellate court, to the appellate court, to the federal court, from the federal court to the United States Supreme Court. Um, now, labor unions, police departments, FOPs, collective bargaining, is there a need for it? Yes, I truly believe mm -hmm. there is a need for it. And I'm okay. also one to go on record and say I don't believe in nothing about defunding the police department. Exactly. And I think that the funding sources for the police department should be left in the hands of the city council and not necessarily driven by the police department. Because Correct. I think if your city council is doing the job that they do, they would know and analyze and see exactly what the needs are for every department that they oversee. And the number mm -hmm. one department, the number, the number one department, I say number one, 
and it's hard to say this because they both are side by side, and that's your police department and your fire department. Correct. You know? Uh, And then when you start doing that, you almost say, well, what about the trash people and the water people? Because without either one of those trash and water, you're in misery. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's an oversight duty that your 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 legislative body in each one of your governing cities should take as priorities to make sure that those who protect and serve, both from fire and police, those who provide your other services, that those are gonna be the individual departments that we're gonna prioritize every year. You know, because you have in Mm -hmm. every city, you have in every city a lot of issues that could be on the low end of your priority list. But let's make sure that you don't have to have a threat from your your labor union or your FOP or the firemen's union to say that they're going to strike because we're not being paid the salary we deserve, or we're not getting certain benefits that we that should never ever ever be. Mm-hmm. If the if the city government is doing the job that they are elected to do, and so because you have city governments that have not done the job that they have was elected to do in reference to addressing those priorities, then you don't have. You then then the, the unions feel like they have no choice but to push their strength and to use the numbers that they have and the force that they can develop. And I think that that's where you have so much of this issues that becomes more public now because of the open records re- request laws that everybody now has seen and they say, well, you know, because... This individual is running for office. Who is the FOP going to support? And in many of these legis- in the, many of the uh, the elections, they say, well, if the FOP is supporting this individual, they're campaigning for this individual. They're putting out signs. They're making donations. Then, to the average citizen, they feel like that that's the individual that should be elected. So, does it sway votes? Most definitely, it does. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, and, I, and I, although I support the FOP, I ran for office twice, ran for office, didn't have an opponent the second time, and I did not receive the support of the FOP, nor did I receive the report, the the, the, the support from ASME, which is the local uh, employees union for the city. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And in spite of not receiving their support, I was able to succeed, and I was successful in the election. So it's not to say that that just because you get their support, you're going to prevail, and that if you don't have their support, that you're not going to prevail. So it's, it's – but it, it it's a – issue that I think can be resolved in a way that 
does not make it look like that everybody is trying to go rogue on each other. Okay. Yeah. Because we need what, what, we need a boss. We need the fire. We need the police department. And uh, you know. Well, you definitely uh, need the prosecutors. And you need to, and you need the prosecutors, you know, and that's why when you, when I heard that 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 term, defund the police, who 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 are you going to call? Yeah. Yeah. And we exactly. all going to be play, We all going to be placed in that crisis situation where, you know, you can't defend yourself. You know, the act has already happened. You got your family in the car and somebody has hit you and caused severe damage and injuries to your family and they broke and ran. Who are you going to call? Exactly. Exactly. Well, hey, Skip, we're getting ready to come up and take our our last break uh, of the show. So we're going to take this break and we're going to come back. We're going to get back into the topic of the ties that bind police and prosecutors. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, one in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Hey, we want to welcome everyone back to You and the Law uh, podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We want to remind our listeners that uh, you can also follow You and the Law on our social media platforms. You can follow us on Facebook at You and the Law One. You can follow us on Instagram at You underscore and the Law. You can also follow us on Twitter at You and the Law One on Twitter. Uh, so. Definitely go to our Facebook page, follow the page, like the page, share it with your uh, with your family and friends, uh, so they can tune in every every Tuesday to uh, to the podcast show, and um, because we definitely have some topics that are uh, that talks about current things that's going on in in uh, in the criminal justice system and in policing, and. You know, Skip, you, you talked about something that me and Chief Humphrey have, have talked about on the show numerous times, uh, this whole topic about defund the police. And defund the police is one of the worst things that 
uh, has came out of out of some of the protests uh, over the past year, and where uh, some city councils uh, in Oklahoma, as well as other states, and even up in Portland and and in Seattle, where they've taken funds from the police and utilized them for other services within the city. And, and Keith, as you know, when those things happen, that directly impacts your budget. And you have to figure out how you're going to provide the same services that you that you, that you had that you need to provide to the citizens without that money that's allocated in your budget. Well, you know, I, I think, and, and Skip, I, I'll tell you, I, I appreciate what you said, and, and Virgil, the, the thing that, that I think we talked about this before, I really think that you have uh, citizens who get the two words, defund and uh, reform, confused. Uh, yeah. Reform, I'm all about reform. I'm all about right. it, and I'm all about right. modifying budgets to uh, do some of the things that we could do better, you know, uh, community programs and hiring more civilians for positions, social workers, and I'm all about that. But the funding means completely abolishing uh, the um, – and, and, Skip, you're aware of this, man. In, in my old department, they took almost a million dollars out of their budget at the last minute of the – for approving the budget, man, which was devastating. They uh, paid dearly. They're going to pay dearly for it, they, though, Chief. They're going to pay dearly for it, and, and that will tell you Yeah, they went up on the Supreme the Court. Union, yeah, yeah that's one Court. of the things that the union stood up for, you know, basically said, exactly. hey, we can't do this. Yeah. Right. And so, and so, you know, I think a lot of people, because I'm all about, we just hired a social worker here, and, you know, we're looking to hire more, and we're looking at civilianizing some positions inside the department. That's part of reform. I mean, you know, reform is sitting down, looking at your organization to see what you can do better to improve relationships exactly. within the community. It goes exactly. back to procedural justice. You know, everything doesn't have to be taught by a police officer. We have to reform our officers to understand that we don't have the answer to everything. And so I'm a firm believer of reform. I am. Uh, yeah. But I think we have to we have to educate our communities on that. And you're right. It's devastating because a lot of that came from an emotional backlash. Right. Uh, the right. George Floyd situation. Right. And uh, – but you know what, Skip and, and Virgil, and to the listeners, people have to realize that the Minneapolis situation wasn't the first situation, and you have to look at oh, no. the Ferguson thing wasn't the first. You know, Michael Brown wasn't the first situation, and in Philadelphia, um, you know, the gentleman that was killed in Philadelphia that wasn't the first, and 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 uh, uh, Mr. Arbery's not going to be the first, not going to be the last, the case last. where there's a that's not going to be, and that's the sad right. thing about it. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I'm a big uh, follower on TikTok, and they have these little these little skits that they do. And it was one skit. I don't know if you all have seen this, but it was a it was a prosecutor who was all about the win. Uh, they had information that this gentleman was not even in the. He had an alibi, and his co, the his assistant that was helping him prosecute, had these pictures of the gentleman being in another state had witness statements, had his credit cards, and this basically this guy was like, look at him. Look how he looks. He's probably going to do something or he's done something, so this is just catch up for what he's done, and it won't hurt us if we don't tell the jury or tell the judge about it. I mean, those type of things happen. 
I mean, just just yeah. skip. Think about what, what happened in Dallas when when Craig Watkins was right. the DA. How many how many cases did he about twenty cases that he over that he got overturned of guys who had spent right. twenty twenty five years in the in the pen for you know things they didn't do most yeah. of their life well, it, or yeah. small infractions well, and, and, and some of them didn't have any evidentiary support to it. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and guys, let me let me bring this up, and, and, and Keith, you brought up a good point. You know, we talked about on the show not too long ago, and Skip, you're probably familiar with this case. Anthony Ray Hinton, out of um, out of uh, Alabama, uh, was convicted of a, of a crime of of a murder that he did not commit. He spent over thirty something years in an Alabama prison. One of the things that really Still to this day, that really bothers me is the fact that the investigator in the case told this told this man, "I don't care if you." In the, in the words of chilling, I don't care if you didn't do it. I don't care if you did do it. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to get convicted. You're gonna you're going to have a white prosecutor. You're going to have a white judge. You're going to have a white jury, and you're going to get convicted of this murder charge. So this detective presented this information to the prosecutor. This prosecutor never even fully just he took the word of the investigator, and here was an innocent man who spent 30-something years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And it's just chilling the fact that so many African-American men have went through that same process, and it all leads back to the initial arrest, and then the second part of it is how the prosecutors handle the case, and the third part is the jury saw that there was overwhelming evidence to convict this person of a crime, and they spent... 25 years, 30 years in prison, and some some men have even died in prison uh, for a crime that they didn't commit. So I think that's why you have so many people, when we talk about calls for reform, and especially when there's been this intensified, you know, we saw this unrest across the country. And even going back, uh, uh, you know, Keith, when uh, President Obama was, was in office, uh, Barack Obama created the White House office. The, the, he created the Barack Obama's White House Policing Task Force, which recommended that there be regional authorities who should do independent or special prosecutors to handle killings by police officers. And so you're talking about having a mutual trust between the community and law enforcement, but we still don't see that. And that's something that uh, – Barack Obama brought out when he was in office. Well, well you know what? I, I will, let me let me say let me say this real quick. I, and, and to skip, so sure. I had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to to speak on a panel in Dallas, and there was a gentleman there, a very distinguished looking gentleman, and got a chance to hear his story. And he spent 19 years in the pen. And he was he was released. He was one of those individuals that was released uh, thanks to, to Craig Watkins. And 
and I listened to his story, and as a police chief, you know what? You know the only thing I could say to him? I'm sorry, man. I, mm-hmm, I, yeah. I, that's the only thing I could say. I'm sorry, and, and and that's not the way the criminal justice system was is meant to work. I'm sorry, man. I am so sorry. That's that's all I could say. Yeah. Right, <laughs> you you right. know, I could. That's all I could say. But anyway, I just wanted to say that real quick. Well, if 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 I could say this, you know, uh, I'm very very uh, knowledgeable of uh, the Hinton case because we've used that as some background information to show how this whole issue of race, poverty, inadequate legal assistance and prosecution misconduct is still so prevalent in our society that it just takes one person's life to be misused and abused by the inadequate legal assistance, the prosecution misconduct, all based upon the person's race and the fact that the person don't have money. That's what we have a problem with in our community, in our society, is we still hate to face the fact that it's driven by money. Mm -hmm. Those who have can, those who have not can't. And unfortunately, who knows more about race than those individuals who have been mistreated because of race? Would you agree? Yeah, totally agree. Now, I graduated from law school. There was 15 of us and I, uh, African-Americans in my law school class. I'd be willing to bet you that was in 1975 that if you took a poll of every law school in the state of Oklahoma, which you only have three, Tulsa, OCU, and OU, that in the graduating class you probably won't have a total of 20 African-Americans at each school, if that many. And so you still don't have people who know about the true issues of poverty and race that's even coming into the profession to represent individuals who are without the funds to pay for, you know, some legal assistance or some lawyers. And Mm -hmm. so... There's a collective body of some of some attorneys who feel like that it's our duty and it's our honor to help when we can help. And so I have cases that I'm not getting paid a lot for, but because I saw the injustice and the inequities that was in the facts of the case as it relates to the investigation and from time to time, we have to to do that. I feel like it's our honor as African Americans to 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 bend over and do something for those individuals who can't pull themselves up with money because they have been accused, and sometimes it's falsely accused. And and so, when you don't have the number of African American trial lawyers that is out here in the totality of this geographical area, 
then you're going to continue to have these type of uh, of cases that, that just, it makes you sick when you read that a man's life was taken for 28 years. He was on death death row. He wasn't just taken. Death row. He was on yeah. death row. Yeah. It was just a matter of minutes before somebody could have pulled the, the plug or, uh, you, you know, and, and, and then you see that the outcome of the case was just totally falsified information. A yeah, man accused exactly. of killing two people at a at a hamburger stand at a at a fast food restaurant. Yeah. That never happened. Yeah. At least never happened never by happened. him. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, we have to talk and, and, and I think you all can agree when you look at the number of African Americans in the law enforcement, it basically is the same. As far as well, from, it, from nineteen from nineteen sixty to 2021, you look at the number of African-Americans in the police department in Oklahoma City and every metropolitan city, well, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, and you will see that you would think that the numbers would be much higher than they are based on the transformation from 1960 to 2021 and the civil rights movement, and you still... You go to most of these police departments, if you're not in the metropolitan city, you may see one or two African-Americans on the force. But you're not going to see a large number. So you have a sensitivity gap that continues to exist in these communities. Because I remember when community policing was, Top conversation in most of these metropolitan cities. Do y'all remember that too? Oh yeah, community. Yeah. Everybody was on. Yeah, I remember when they used to walk the beach, as they say. Yeah, that was probably the best policing that communities ever had. Exactly. Yeah, but well, you know, well guys, we're as, as we as we look at this, we all have to accept the fact that. Life has changed in our society so much, and much of what we have to have as far as adjusting to those changes from a governmental position, we have not kept up. Yeah. Exactly. Well, hey, guys, we're coming up on the last uh, couple minutes of the show, and, and Skip, this has been a, a great topic to talk about, and, I, you know, I think our listeners definitely uh, have, have tuned in uh, to get a better understanding of how the side of, of the criminal justice system work with prosecutors and police, and the fact that there's been some uh, some serious issues with misconduct across uh, across the country uh, between police and uh, prosecutors or district attorneys, whichever name you want to call them. But uh, you know, Skip, we. From from myself, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show, and I know uh, Chief Humphrey feels the same way because we know you're 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 busy uh, an attorney. Uh, so we again we want to thank you for coming on and and talking with us about this uh, topic of the ties that bind police and prosecutors. So um, again, we want to thank you and uh, let our listeners know real quick if they would like to. Utilize you for your service. How they can get in touch with you? Yeah, well, 
Well, <laughs> well, it's 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 law office here in Oklahoma City at 205 Northwest 63rd, and our number is 405-235-1976. And uh, all right, if, if we're not in, leave a message. We return every telephone call. Okay. All right. Well, Skip, Chief Humphrey, you got any uh, last words to say? No, man. As always, man. Uh, the counselor, Esquire. Uh, Extraordinaire is always <laughs> on point, man. So I, I appreciate you, man. It's good hearing from you, man. Well, it, it was it was great to connect with you again. And I, again, I wish you the best in your new position, and would love to uh, to have a set, an opportunity to chat with you guys again. All right, we'll definitely get you oh, back you, on. Well, most definitely, well, most hey, definitely. Yeah. Well, hey guys, we want to remind everybody that if you miss any parts of this show. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro. That's thebachelornews.airtime.pro. But you've been listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.